today's word is about strength. Today's word is about finding strength in God. It's about being able to, it, it's, about, it's about standing in a place where you think your strength may be compromised, standing in a place uh, facing headwinds um, that will rock, attempt to rock you, that will attempt to blow you down, that will attempt to cause you to tumble and stumble and fall. But today's word is about how God, the same God of Psalm 28, who is your strength, causes you to stand firm and hold on. Somebody say, stand firm, hold on. If you're going through a really difficult spell, and I'm not going to do, do this in a rah-rah way, but stand firm, hold on. Amen? If you're doing great, you know, if you're doing great and you're all pumped, stand firm and hold on. Amen? I'm going to read to you from 2 Thessalonians. Uh, let's just see if this works today. Yeah, all right. Um, Chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and there'll be one more page, no worries. But we ought to thank God always for you. This is Paul, Silas, Timothy, thanking God for the church in Thessalonica. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. There's quite a bit going there, okay? He called you to this through our gospel so that you might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to pause here. We're going to keep reading in a moment. But I just want you to be able to see what's happening in this first long sentence. He called you from, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation. God has chosen you. S-I-B-K-L at Sunai Bulo. God has chosen you for salvation. And He saves you through two ways. Through the sanctification by the Spirit. That's number one. Through belief in the truth. That's number two. So that's how the sentence works. If you break this up into a list, there'll be a for your salvation colon dot point one through sanctification or, and dot point two through belief in the truth. Right? That's how this, that's how this sentence works. And that's our first and second point today. We'll get into that later. Let me continue reading. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Somebody say, stand firm. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold. Some translations say, hold on. Hold on to, right? Hold on to the traditions that you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and, uh, and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope, by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you with ev in every good work and word. Father, may you bless the reading of this word. May you cause it to go forth and multiply in our hearts. May the food that began as food for one be shared and become a food for many, up to the thousands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, three things that I want to share with you guys today. The first one is this. Stand firm in your sanctification journey. Stand firm in your, somebody say sanctification. Sanctification journey. The second thing I want to share with you today is to stand firm in your fidelity to the truth. Somebody say fidelity. 
in your belief and in your fidelity to the truth. The third point that I want to share with you is this, to hold on to the teaching transmitted to you. Somebody say transmitted. Transfer. Hold on to the teaching transmitted to you. There's a lot of words in these three points, okay? If you want to take a photo, now's your time because I'm going to simplify my three points for you today to the three words that I've highlighted in yellow, okay? And these are the words, sanctification, fidelity, and transmission, okay? Big words, many syllables. Sanctification, fidelity, and transmission. Now, Let's start with the first one. What is this long, big, almost clumsy word? Sanctification, right? It's to sanctify, right? It's to make clean. It's to make pure. It's to make holy. It's to make, it's to make worthy of coming into the presence of God, right? It's to sanctify. Now, what does the word say? From the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation. Through what? Through sanctification by the Spirit. Straight up, this is the Spirit's work. So we sing just now, Spirit lead me where my trust is without borders. It's the Spirit of God that leads us on a journey of being sanctified, of being cleansed, of being made pure and holy and righteous. We can't do that by ourselves. We can try we can try, and to a large extent, we can even adopt and, uh, uh, and, and, and put on all the external behavioral uh, look of going on a sanctification journey, but the real work happens through the Spirit of God. Now, I just want to pause here to cause you to think about this, because we're not, we're normally told that we are saved through our belief in the truth, right? That's what we always hear, right? You're saved. When you profess, you believe in your heart, you profess with your mouth, you're saved, right? That's Romans 10 verse 9, right? And salvation is for those who believe in your heart, profess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, you're saved, okay? Now Romans 9, 10 verse 9 is a very important verse and it's a very important verse in a Bible with many important verses and all of this scripture needs to come together and inform one another. So Romans 10.9 is like that friend who was your one friend and you for the longest time, they were like your only friend and suddenly you walk into a new church and there's like all these new friends and you're going to make new friends, okay? So, and then slowly, you're going to see Romans 10.9, you know, believe in your heart, profess with your mouth, start interacting with new friends, and then they will find their place in the community of Scripture informing your heart. So what's happening here is you have been saved also through sanctification. Sanctification is part of the saving journey. So one thing I want you to know is this. Number one, you were saved. Everybody say, I was saved. I was saved. I've been justified. God makes me right by the blood of Christ. It's not my own work. I was saved. Everybody say, I was saved. I am being saved. I am being saved. I am currently, real time, being saved. God is active, present in my life, sanctifying me day by day. So every day I am being saved from my own sin, and from my own, the residue of flesh in me, from the temptations of the devil, from the attacks of Satan, every day I am still being saved and He is sanctifying me. Somebody say, I will be saved. 
I will be saved. And that one day when all chaos breaks loose, all hell seems to erupt, you know, and, and there's a nation will war on nation and earthquakes will, will take place and a man of lawlessness comes out and so many people are running here and there and then everyone's afraid. I will be saved on that day. Amen. Because the Bible says that I was saved through the power of the cross. Every day the Holy Spirit continues to do the sanctifying, saving work in me and those who endure till the end. What will be saved? All three happen in the life of those who belong to Jesus. Amen? Amen? And as I described it just now, you can hear the Bible verses popping out as well. This is not something coming out from one, one person's uh, theological brain. This is your Bible. Your Bible describes a faith journey where you were saved by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. It was decisive. You are being saved through the constant everyday involvement of the Holy Spirit in your life. And those who endure till the end will be saved. You are saved through a journey of sanctification. Now, here's the thing. We always, when we hear the word sanctification, we associate it with some kind of trial, some kind of pain, some kind of testing. And I, I started to push this a little bit this week and started ask myself, why? Why do we associate it with testing? Why do we associate this, the, the journey of being cleansed and purified um, as one that involves uh, a trial? A trial that we are supposed to uh, uh, thrive through, right? And, and maybe it's because Romans chapter 5, another very important friend in your Bible that you need to meet and know. And when you know them well, you realize they're a good, good friend to have. Is that suffering produces endurance. Suffering is not meant to break you. It's not meant to mangle you. Though I know that sometimes... In, in an unredeemed form, suffering can mangle us. It can wound us. It can damage us. But suffering that God allows around you is there to give you endurance. And the endurance produces character. Something changes about who you are. Something changes about your inner reserve, about, your, about the repository of tahan lasa inside your heart, right? When you've suffered much, you can withstand a lot. Something changes that produces character. And character, in turn, produces a hope. Because when you have character, when the character is informed through years of enduring suffering, then you can hope for something. And hope, Romans 5 goes on to say, does not fail you. Because the Holy Spirit fills you. It fills you, which is why it's so important. You go back to the Holy Spirit, you come back to the top, He fills you with enduring power to keep withstanding the test. Amen? James, James uh, 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 chapter 1 says this, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Pause there. How many of you guys, you consider it great joy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, praise God. Praise God, right? And then sometimes some of us uh, will say that, wow, I don't know how to consider it a, a great joy. I really, I don't even know how I can consider this at all, full stop, right? And it is difficult. When you go through trials of all kinds, it's not even like, like one type, right? Various trials. Paul is asking us now, 
He's not asking you to be masochistic and to enjoy pain. Like, ooh, ooh I love pain, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm going to start looking for, 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 for opportunities to suffer, right? Like, he's not asking for that. But what is he asking for? He's asking that when you go through trial and pain and suffering, to know that somewhere underneath this suffering, which is a surface thing, there is a sub-layer. And there is another sub-layer. And there is another sub-layer. And if you dig deep enough underneath every layer of trial, right at the bottom, there is a work God is doing inside of you that is renewing you. And when he says, consider it great joy, what he's saying is that consider the joy underneath the suffering that you're going to sift out layer over layer over layer so that you can consider it a great joy to burn through that suffering and eventually see why God put it there for you so that you may be sanctified, purified, cleansed, and renewed and strengthened. We all want to we, we be strong, but you can't be strong if the hard work does not set in. If you go to gym, you know this. You can't get strong. You can't get fit, you know, if you keep skipping days, right? And all of us who have fasted and prayer and prayed for our friends know that if you want to see your own fire grow strong, so strong that the fire becomes infectious and it starts burning around you and those around you come into the power of a supernatural God, it comes at a cost, it comes at a cost to someone, to something. You go through seasons of subjecting your life or God takes you into seasons of subjecting your life to certain amounts of fire. But that fire is not meant to singe you. That fire is not meant to burn you. The fire is meant to cleanse you. We always use, if you've been in church long enough, you'll be familiar with this analogy. It's still, to me, Perhaps the best analogy I can think of um, it's the is the analogy of a metal smith, right? If you go, if you know how metal works are done, at least in the olden days, you would have a met, uh, uh, the the smithery is burning hot. You know, your 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 metal worker will be in there hammering away at, let's say, a sword right? Hammering away at a sword. It is, the metal comes in impure. It's got the metal you want, but it's got all kinds of impurities that you don't want. It goes through the fire. And it goes through the fire, and the fire becomes so hot that it burns so that the metals remain, but the impurities fall away. And when the metals uh, become purer, they become stronger because they are no longer weakened by the impurities and it's hammered into the right shape. If it's not hot, you can't work with it. That's why the, the, the smithy will work in a very, very hot furnace so that the metal becomes malleable. And when it's malleable, the metal can be shaped into a sharp sword, in this case, a sword. And when it all is done, the smithy can hold the sword in front of him or her and see their own face reflected in the metal. In the same way, you and I, we are all full of desire for God, love and hunger for God, 
a, a deep thirst to see him. And all that is mingling together with a desire for the world, a love for the world, and a thirst to, to just say, oh God, I just, I, I just need some time out from you, right? And then God is saying, and then sometimes we take it you, you know, to places that we shouldn't take it to. And so God is saying, I'm going to take you and I'm going to put you into a fire. And that fire is going to burn off all the impurities from you. And when the fire is so hot, you're going to be malleable in my hands and I can shape you in my hands and, I, and you will not be a lump of metal. You will be shapeable, moldable into what I want you to become. And you will be beautiful. And you say, no, it's painful. He says, no, hang in there. You will be beautiful and you will be useful and you will be sharp. You will be so sharp and the Lord can put you in his hand after this and he shapes you. And when all is done, you are stronger for it. And when he lifts you up, he sees his self reflected in you. Amen? Amen? But you can't get there if you're a lump of metal. He needs to put you through the fire. And so this is what it looks like. He takes you through the fire. John 15 says, I'm going to jump from this hot metal sort analogy to something very different, something maybe a bit more agricultural. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser, the gardener. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. But every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes, he prunes. Pruning for what? So that those that are pruned, they may bear more fruit. Pruning is painful. Pruning means the knife comes at you, right? The garden shears come at you. But guess what? It is also often said that the gardener is closest to you when he's pruning you. And I want you to know this. In the moments where he's pruning, he's cutting off parts that that he sees are not going to help you grow. Parts that are hampering your strengthening, hampering your thirsting, hampering your, 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 your hungering for him, he will cut those parts off. It will hurt for a moment, but it will be so that you bear more fruit. Amen? Amen? Pastor Lee Chu shared this in a young adults group a long time ago, right? Um, and I still remember it till today. Pain without purpose is meaningless. Pain without purpose is meaningless. And there are many people out there who are going through pain, which it's not for me to say whether it's purposeless, but I've, I've heard many people uh, um, uh, tell about their own pain, which they perceive to be meaningless. And it saddens me. For any one of us to go through pain that is meaningless. But you need to know this, that beneath every experience of pain that you go through, God has purpose for it. God has a purpose that the pain does. It's not just, it's not just pain in and of itself. It is pain that does a work in you. And so, our kind of pain as Christians, we walk into um, daily life ready to face joy and sorrow knowing that both have a greater purpose at the end of it, the refining and the sanctifying of ourselves. Amen? Amen? And so, my friends, the, the, the Thessalonian church was going through a season where the, where, where the apostles are preparing them for the winds and the beating and, 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 and the attack of something. Sometimes not just some, some demonic things. Often it's just the way the world is. Circumstances are going to come and, and hit at you. 
Will you stand firm? What many of you may not know is that over the last few weeks in our Dominate Altar, we have been going through the book of Ephesians and we are landing right now, right now in the armour of God. And just two weeks ago, on a Saturday morning, I was handling this, right? Um, the verses that says that, says that put on the whole armour of God. Why? So that you may withstand the evil day. So that you may stand the wiles of the enemy. Put on. Why should you be warned to withstand if the weather is calm? I don't have to tell you guys. Hey, make sure you hold your seats properly huh, in Desara Central right now while you're sitting on a chair because there is probably no earthquake uh, uh, warning and there's nothing that's going to cause the ground beneath us to shake, cause you to tumbang. Then I'm going to... I don't have to tell you right now, hang on to your seats. You're not going to fall in your seats right now. At least not, not for lack of comedic value. Suddenly one of you falls over, you know. But my friends, the fact that Paul had to tell the Ephesian church Put on the whole armor, gird yourself, strengthen yourself, get your stance right so that you can withstand. It means that something is going to come to hit at you and that's going to cause you to risk falling over. That's so important. So do go on and put on the whole armor of God. The truth, the righteousness, the salvation, the faith, the sword, the, the, the preparation to take the gospel out. Put on the whole armor of God. But in this sense, church, I'm I'm exhorting you, I'm encouraging you that if you're going through a rough season, consider the joy that sits underneath it. Consider the sanctifying work that is being that, that God is doing because pain without purpose will be meaningless. You don't want to suffer for nothing. Amen? But to suffer for something, we'll all do that. I would suffer for my children. We, we, you have suffered for your children and sometimes for your grandchildren. You have gone to the to, you, you, you've gone days and nights over your business before because it's precious to you, over your, your, your wife before or your husband before. You will suffer because it is meaningful. Amen? Amen? How much more for the cause of our Lord? Amen? So the first point that I want to share with you is sanctification. Stand firm in your sanctification journey. Second point is this. Stand firm in your fidelity to the truth. Okay? Now, we're going to get there. God has chosen you for salvation through belief in the truth. We all know this. And I started talking about Romans 10.9 just now. We believe in our hearts. We confess with our mouth. Now, SIB Kiat Sungai Bulo, I know you are very good students, but I'm going to test you whether you're good students. Every time in the New Testament you see the word here, belief, Okay, sometimes translated in English as faith. What's the Greek word? What's that? We got one answer here, okay? But I'm not sure if it's loud enough for everyone else to hear, so I'm going to give everyone else who didn't hear a chance to answer it as well. Does anybody know the Greek word that is translated into belief or faith? Pistis. Pistis, Anne at the back and May in front of her has said, pistis, right? Pistis. And pistis is an umbrella term. It is such a rich word that there is no one English equivalent for it. It's a little bit like the Hebrew word chesed, right? Which, is, which means 
some, some kind of love that is just outerworldly and there's no one English word, even a compound English word that can capture it, okay? Pistis in Greek is like that. Pistis in Greek means a few things. It means the faith, like I have faith that something will happen. There can be miracles when you believe, when you pistis. That is pistis, okay? The belief in your heart. So that causes you to be able to believe for great things. That is pistis. A lot of the times in English, it is translated as faith. Okay? Pistis is also your verbal profession, right? Who do you have faith in? Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I believe that He came. I believe that He died on the cross for my sins. I believe that He is resurrected. I believe that He is resurrected into, in, in, into to stand at the right hand, to sit at the right hand of the Father. He is now the ruling King over all the cosmos. That is your profession of your faith. Pistis involves your verbal profession. And then Pistis also involves the way you go about ordering your life. And sometimes, you'll see in your English translations, pistis is translated as faithfulness, which is quite, it's a broad term, right? So it's not just faith like I believe inside, but faithfulness means that there, you have loyalty to someone. You're faithful to this God. He's like a lover to you, and you are faithful to your lover. There is loyalty. There is fidelity. You don't cheat on your God. You don't cheat on him. You don't have other lovers. That's what pistis means, that you have allegiance. You hear me use this word sometimes, right? You have allegiance to your God, meaning that you don't change camps. You don't fight for the enemy. You don't be an accessory to the enemy. You are loyal to your God. And that's how you live your life. There is the, there is the help belief. There is the professed faith. And then there is the enacted loyalty. And all of these things, every time you see the word faith or faithfulness or belief or trust in your New Testament, go look it up. Likely, it means pistis. And when you see that, know that the poor translators could not find one word to capture everything. And so they have landed on faith or faithfulness, but actually it means all of it, always, almost at the same time. It always carries this very rich meaning, okay? A little bit of teaching there, so you know, right? So when we say that you are saved through belief in the truth, yes, you are saved through having that faith and that belief in your heart that Jesus Christ is real, He is your God and all that. Yes, of course, yes. How can you even move forward without that? That is the primary thing. But that is not the only thing. And so when it says that you are saved through belief in the truth, and maybe that's why people get so hung up over, oh, are you once saved, always saved? Can you lose your salvation and all that stuff? You believe your faith saves you. And then your, your, your loyalty and fidelity to God is part of the sanctifying work that saves you, right? And so, salvation through belief in the truth is also salvation through faith in the truth. It's also salvation through faithfulness to the truth. It is also salvation through loyalty to the truth. And it's also salvation through your fidelity to the truth. If you're married, you know the only way to save your marriage is to stay married. If you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, and you know, you know the only way to stay together is to stay 
to them. So stay true, true to them. And then there are many other things underneath what does it mean to stay true to them. And that's what this, this second point is all about. It's about being faithful to God. Be faithful to the God who speaks that truth. Now, I'm just going to pause here for a moment um, on the slides. Right? I'm going to stand in front of the TV and, and say a few things. I spent a large part of Thursday, Friday, uh, thinking about this, right? What does it mean to say that you are faithful to the truth? Because I know what it's like to be faithful to my wife. I know what it's like to be faithful to my church. You know, I don't, you know, drop you guys on a Sunday morning and, you know, uh, you know, watch TV, right? I'm here, you know, I'm faithful to you guys. What does it mean to be faithful to the truth? And maybe I'm going to take you on a little journey. Maybe faithful to the truth means that I have been told certain things are true. And I'm going to be faithful to those things. And what it means is, maybe, right, that there are all these claims that claims to be true. We are called, they are called truth claims, right? They are, called, they are not true. Not every truth claim is true. They are just a claim to truth, right? Okay? And not every truth claim is untrue, okay? Some truth claims prove to be true. Some pro truth claims prove to be untrue, okay? So there are all these truth claims out there. And if you are a thinking person, a thinking woman or a thinking man, you know that you cannot just accept anything blind. But it sounds like when you say, be faithful to the truth, okay? Have fidelity to the truth. It kind of feels a little bit like, oh, I don't want you to look at any other truth, you know? Um, you have already been married to this truth. You cannot flirt with other truths anymore, truth claims anymore. Don't flirt with other truth claims. Don't, don't have one-on-one -on -one dinners with other truth claims, you know, <laughs> and all those things, right? Of course, I'm using marital analogy here, right? And I thought, but then Paul asked us to test every spirit, right? And all kinds of people will walk into your life spouting all kinds of truth claims. Aren't you going to test all that, Right? Because you need to learn to discern, right? We need to learn to discern. You're going to pick up books. You're going to, you're going to listen to podcasts. You're going to need to grow sharp in your ability to discern right from wrong. And so what does it mean to be faithful to the truth? If you're if you faithful in a marital way where you say that, oh, I'm not going to look at other truth claims, you know? And then guess what? Once upon a time, there was a truth claim floating around that said the world is flat. Can you imagine if you were like, oh, no, I have to be faithful to the truth and I can only, you know, I cannot look at other, and then, and then somebody out there is saying, no, the world is round, you know, it's like, it's spherical, you know, and it's tilted on a 33, uh, one-third axis. And no, 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 I'm faithful to this because I've been told this. Man, you know, as thinking men and women, we need to be able to let truth claims in the same room and let them have a go, right? put two truth claims, competing truth claims into the same ring and let them have a right go. And sometimes it's easier. Sometimes it's evidentiary. So more evidence will, uh, will arise and it will help you to see, oh, look, world is flat. It's not really working out. Guys, can you step out the ring? I think we have a winner, right? And, and sometimes it's easier like that. By the way, if you look into the Bible, um, there is a meme for this. I thought it was so funny. I didn't manage to get it up. If you look into your Bible, the world is neither flat nor is the world round. According to the Bible, the world is a footstool. It's a joke. It's a joke, right? 
so you put truth claims together, you let them bang at each other, and over time, sometimes evidence comes up, uh, the world shows up, scientific. I, 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 I have a very scientific approach to our faith, in a certain sense. And the sense is like this. I think we shouldn't be afraid of science. I think you should just let data arise, you know. And I believe wholeheartedly that the God who created this earth created this earth, right? And, and when the data arises, you get better information and it will always affirm the truth. It may not affirm the truth in the little box that you were taught, but it will always affirm the truth. Because the truth is out there. It is out there and it's also in here in your scriptures as well. And so, what, what, what am I saying? I'm saying, let them bang at each other. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Okay, sometimes there's no evidence that can arise to cause one truth claim or another, you know, to appear more, more true, whole up, to be a, the, the, the more sensible, rational, or, or logical, or meaningful one, right? And in those situations, how? In those situations, how I want to help you to think about this because we say you have to be faithful to the truth, fidelity to the truth. So how? And I want to say this is all my own revelation as well. We don't, we are not faithful to the truth as if I have a personal relationship with that truth claim. Truth claims don't save you. Let me say it again. Truth claims, even if they are proved to be true, Truth claims alone don't save you. Jesus saves you. My brother-in-law used to wear this t-shirt that says, guns don't kill, people kill. Right? <laughs> you got a picture of a gun there. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Truth claims alone don't save you. The one who speaks that truth saves you. So you don't, you're not called into a relationship, an intimate relationship with a truth claim. You are called into an intimate relationship with a God who speaks those things. And so, my friends, when the Bible, when Paul tells the Thessalonican church that you need to be faithful to the truth, what he's really saying is you need to be faithful to the God who saves you and who speaks these true things. True about you, true about creation, true about the way your salvation works, true about the way the eternity will work, true about the way um, your soul will be if you order your life in a certain way, true about everything. Be faithful to God. Be faithful to that God. And the things He says, hold them dear, which is where we get to our last point. There is the sanctifying journey. The world will beat at you. Stand firm. When the world beats at you in the midst of suffering, it is always offering you, cutting out a new road for you and saying, this is the easier path. I pave it with, with tar. I, I, I scatter uh, plants around it. I make it comfortable for you. I fix your suspension for you. It will be a smooth ride. Come, I offer you a way out of suffering. Stand firm. Stand firm. And then, there will be many truth claims out there, all vying for your heart, vying for your attention, vying for your belief, vying for your loyalty to it. Stand firm. Because you need to look past all the competing claims to see the God who walked with you, the God who pulled you out of darkness. 
and then set your feet upon a rock. Trust in the God. Even when you can't square out between the truth claims, trust in the God who pulled you out of darkness and set your feet upon a rock. In that way, those who endure to the end will be saved. And my final point is this. He says, hold on to the traditions, to what was transmitted to you by us. The word goes like this. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. Now, traditions here does not mean um, uh, I, uh, every Chinese New Year, I put the orange here and I give ang pao uh, on the first day morning, right? That's, that's not the tradition. You know, he's not talking about that, okay? So you may have your traditions. You got to figure out your traditions yourself or maybe with your, with your leaders or your, or your groups, right? The traditions here is talking about the, the Greek word for tradition is paradosis. And this Greek word means the transmission or the delivery of a precept, a narrative, or a teaching. So hold on to that which has been transmitted one after another after another until it came to you. Hold on to that. Good! Because it's gone on a long journey to get to you. It's gone on a very long journey to get to you. Steward it well. Hold to it good. We all know every time there's an Olympics or a World Championships of, of athletics, you know, there will always be some relay team. And recently it's been the US relay team, but it's not just them. It's always some relay team who, 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 who mess up the baton passing, right? right? They really make a, a hash out of it. And so the front guard will run too fast if you're receiving if you're receiving a, a, a tradition from someone else, if you're receiving a teaching from someone else, don't run too fast. Make sure you move at a pace where you can catch it. Sometimes the one who is passing on run too fast until bang, you know? You know? If you are a teacher, a preacher, a, a, a cell group leader, if you're passing on something or if you're just walking with someone who is new to the faith, don't run too fast. You're going to bang into them, right? You can't hand something over that way, right? And you need to work it out. You need to know what each other is doing. You need to be mindful and watchful. And so, you got to move together as a transition takes place. That's how things get transmitted, right? I recently bought this book. I, I love it. I'm going to show you guys. Ali, uh, thanks so much. This book, I found it in a second-hand bookstore. It's called The Apostolic Fathers, Greek Text and English Translations, third edition, right? This if you, if you want to take a look, okay, it's going to be at the front. You can come and take a look. You know your New Testament is all the correspondence of the apostles with the early church, right? 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 Second Thessalonica, Second Thessalonians, you know, and so on. This book contains, um, for example, Clement, First Clement, Second Clement. It is the correspondent. Clement was the, was the first bishop of Rome. Right, and he took over from the apostle Peter, and you've got correspondence of Clement uh, uh, um, uh, to the you know with the actually you know I haven't read First Clement, so I don't know he's corresponding to who. I think Clement is writing to the church in Rome, right? You've got um, Ignatius writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, to the Romans, to the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnans. He's got Ignatius writing to Polycarp. You've got Polycarp writing to, to uh, you've got stories about Polycarp's martyrdom. It's fascinating. You know what this is? You know what this is? This is a reminder um, of the correspondence that went on after our Bible's canon was closed, right? And you know what this represents? 
This represents transmission from Jesus to the early church fathers and apostles, the early church fathers and apostles to the apostolic fathers, meaning the children of the apostles, right? And then from the apostolic fathers, then we get to see this transmission. We get to see how they corresponded with each other. And some of these churches we're familiar with because they're already in the Bible, right? Fascinating. And we get to see how these guys transmit to the next guys. And, and church history will tell you how they transmitted to the next, to the next, to the next, until it lost its way and found its way and lost its way again and found its way again, all the way until one day somewhere in Melbourne, one fella decided that God had been, not decided, I mean, he was, he was captured by God who spoke to him and said, Borneo, Borneo, and gave him a map, somehow found a map of Borneo, right? Unrolled it and found this spot, like, where is this in the world? And God said, I'm going to bring people around you. And God brought people around them. Ali, I'm going to pass this back to you, right? God brought, brought people around this one gentleman, right? And then next thing you know, there are three of them. And they land on the shores of Borneo with one more. And next thing you know, there are more. And there are more. And one after another, they're interrupted by the war. They come back together. And next thing you know, they are building a, 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 the beginnings of a church with local believers. They, 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 they cut their way through jungles. Uh, um, the rivers are infested with crocodiles. The wind, the air is infested with malaria. You know, they go through all these things. Is there suffering? Yes. Is there a need to be faithful to the truth and the God of the truth? Oh, yes. And they go through it one by one. And they keep meeting one group, meeting one, one, one murot man, one uh, uh, um, uh, murot woman. And they start sharing. They start transmitting. They start transmitting. They start transmitting. And they deliver and deliver and deliver what they have been taught. And next thing you know, in 1970s, there is a revival in the highlands of Borneo, in Barrio, and then in Bakalalan, there is revival. And next thing you know, this revival fire continues to simmer and simmer. And next thing you know, there are KL people in Sabah catching this fire and catching this vision. And they catch this vision in the 1980s. They make a decision to stay in Malaysia and not go to Australia to migrate and find the way out of into comfort that I told you about. That road opened up. They didn't take it. They said, no, we'll stay. And it, it's, it's not easy to stay. And they decided this is the land. And they said that this, we won't live forever on this land. And, and, and before we go, we're going to transmit this to some people. I'm going to transmit this to some people. So they gathered 13 others and 15 people started a church in KL to remember that what, which was transmitted to them. And today, from 1994 until now, 15 people became several thousand. And we'll stop counting because it's not easy to count after, after a pandemic. And that transmission has been taking place. Some have moved on. Some have stayed. Some are here. And the transmission continues. Hold on to that which has been delivered. Today, Sungai Blow Church, I'm delivering to you the words of Paul passed through so many other hands. And I'm charging you with stewardship of it that you don't let it slip out of your hands 
I'm also charging you with stewardship to one day pass it on. I'm going to get the worship team to come on because we're kind of nearing the end. I'm charging you with the, with the charge, with the responsibility to pass it on to the next person one day. So if you think, no lah, pastor, I don't know how to teach. You know, pastor, I don't know how to preach. Pastor, I don't know how to evangelize. Pastor, I don't know how to anything. I really don't know anything. I really, I, I, I need to be put into a box and sealed, you know, and like, and, and just sent uh, um, to eternity, you know, because I can't do anything. That's not true. It's patently untrue. God has given you gifting. God has given you purpose. God has given you a voice. And maybe the, your upbringing has stifled that voice. That's why you're in church. Maybe your surrounding, uh, um, you're, you just keep being surrounded by people who speak and shout louder than you. Maybe that's why you're in church. But there is one thing that cannot stay shut up. It is the word that was given to you must be transmitted to the next person. And you say, I can't. I can't. There is nobody around you. That's why you're in church. We're going to put people around you. And if you don't stay in church, maybe there are other ways for you to get stumble upon people around you. But I can tell you, God's vision is for every believer to have a community of believers around them. And if, unless you are like a lone missionary in the highlands of Mongolia, you know, you're here. You're here, stay in the church. Online, you're here, stay in the church. You want to come? Come. Come, it's even better. Church, when God puts someone around you, He's going to give you the opportunity to continue passing it on. To the next and the next and the next. You're going to say, your final defense for not being able to do anything, you're going to say, God, I can't do it. I have no strength. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do this. And God's going to say, uh -huh. I heard this before and it's true. You don't have to know how to do this. Spirit will lead you. Spirit will lead you. He will lead you into all these things that look like frightening places where your trust needs to go beyond borders. I invite us all to rise to our feet. We're going to worship now. And I know we went through all kinds of things from suffering to fidelity to transmission but we want to land on this one thing. Who is that one person you want to pass this on to? Who is that one person? Think of someone in your cell group. Think of someone in your family. Think of someone, a friend of yours. Someone younger in the faith than you. You've moved on to solid food. I hope every weekend it's solid food. But still, you have a brother or a sister who's still drinking milk and you want to give them solid food. Spirit lead me. You have someone you want to share the gospel to. They don't, they, you know they're not Christian. You don't dare. You don't know how. Spirit lead me. Father, you see the hands lifted up here. You see the hearts lifted up to you. Help us to stay strong. Help us to stand firm. Help us to keep on the road. On the road of Jesus Christ. Help us to remain in you, O oh Lord God. 
And we pray you will remain in us, O Lord God, that we will indeed bear much fruit. Father, help us to stay the course. Help us to be among those counted when you say those who endure till the end will be saved. May the Lord bless you, church, and keep you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His countenance toward you and give you shalom. Before we say amen, if any of you need prayer, I want to invite you to go to the back of the hall. Someone will be there to pray for you, to minister with you. If you need strength, if you need endurance, if you need courage, you can go and be prayed for. And while everyone is moving, if you're not moving or if you are moving, all of God's people shout aloud, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Come on, somebody give praise to God because He alone deserves all glory. Amen.